So we are um, in the Pasha Chukat, uh, and I'm reading on a triennial cycle. We are at the end of this interesting Pasha. Um, at the beginning of the Pasha, we get the death of Miriam, and we get this whole idea that with the death of Miriam, immediately after it says that Miriam died and was buried, it says, um, and there wasn't water for the Eda, for the community. So this is an engraved invitation for the rabbis, right? If it says Miriam died and was buried, and the very next sentence is, there was no water for the people and they complained, it must mean what? That she somehow was the cause of there being enough water. Because obviously they're tied, right? Because why would that sentence immediately follow the other one? So for the rabbis, they, they start there with, okay, so Miriam had something to do with the water. And once she died, it was gone. And then they read back, all the way back to the song at the sea, where it says that Miriam called to them and they answered. And most of us reading the Pshat, reading on the just regular surface level, um, would mean she called to the people. And the people answered. But the rabbis needing a proof text for this idea of Miriam providing water say, don't read she called to the people and they answered. Rather, because Mayim is a plural word, a plural singular, remember what we talked about, a plural singular? Like face, panim, it's plural, but it's a singular. So don't read, she called to the people, but she called to them, meaning the waters. And they answered. And this is the proof that Miriam, in fact, was the provider of the water in the desert. So this is how the rabbis read Torah, <clears throat> not just at the regular level that you would translate, like the shot, the surface level, but they, they read Torah like a love letter. Why a comma and not a dash here? Why dearest Amy, right, instead of dear Rabbi Bernstein? Why, you know, like every single email. thing. Hmm? It's like reading every letter in an email. It's like reading nuance and tone into an email trying to extract from an email what, what is really going on, what are they thinking, what are they feeling, what, what do they mean, right? So the rabbis read Torah as a love letter and they play with Torah. So what we don't often understand is how playful actually Chazal were, our, our sages. They were very playful. Some of what they do is very tongue-in-cheek. Like we read it, you know, like this. But, um, but they played a lot. This was, the, this was their game. Torah was their life and their game. So um, the way some kids can rattle off stats, you know, about their favorite team and favorite players, I, I'm just like, how, how are you engaged with this material enough to know that, right? You know, th that body of knowledge. They know every single fact and nuance. And you're right. So it's a similar kind of thing. That this is what the rabbis spent their time on and spent their time with. So. The expression of Talmud Chacham uh, says somebody who was gifted in in uh, reading of these or interpreting or exactly Talmud Chacham 
right? A student who's truly bright at this. And that was how you won. You know, you won by having the cleverest interpretation, the cleverest answer, the cleverest matching of if it says the water's in Mary Mir, and then it must mean over here, right? And the more you can do that, the greater an artist you are, right, at, at working with this um, amazing uh, body of, of um, holy literature. So here are two more what? waters. Here are two more waters. From Miriam. Speak. She listened to God and told her parents to get back and have sexual relations and the, the um, developing fetus in the womb is surrounded by water. That's one. Two, she watched by the side of the riverbank as Moses' little raft went sailing down. Um, so, yeah, but since those are exclusively female things, we have to assume the rabbis didn't think of them. I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think the whole Exodus narrative counts on our knowledge of the waters of birth. Because I think passing through the bloody portal and then finally through the Oat split waters, I think you cannot but read that as a birth metaphor. Okay. It's the birth of the people, right? They, they go from being a people to the beginnings of being a nation, right? Of being, I mean, they're, they're kind of riffraff, and then they become an um, a people. That's the birth canal. So, I mean, I think actually that story is dependent on reading the waters as the waters of, of birth and of life and yeah. of life giving. Um, but of course, I think it's women who have taken the story of Miriam and her connection to water further, right? You know, it's, it's women who have really taken that whole idea and now in our time have made it into a, a whole ritual that attends both healing services, girl namings, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the Coast Miriam, the, with the Miriam's cup that we have at Save. I'm just curious when you talk about the, that in relation to birth, do the Orthodox also see that or, or no because it has to do with vaginas? So do they see it? Do they yes, it? I think do they, they do. Talk about it? I think they acknowledge it and um, and they focus on the history of it. Okay. We focus on the symbolism of it okay. because we read this non-fundamentally, yeah. right? Like, I, I don't read that story for the history of the event, mm -hmm. right? The, the symbolism of that story is what moves, continues to move me, yeah. not the historicity. I have a question. What is your thought with Miriam and Mayim being so closely related to separated by a race? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting, it's a, just an interesting business, this Maryam. Mar meaning bitter, yam meaning sea. The bitter sea is an odd name for a heroine, but other people trace the root of her name to other origins. Um, marom, like, you know, lifted up, exalted. Um, but, and there's some, something else I can't remember though, that they, that some people want to use the etymology not from mar, bitter, 
Mar Master. I, I forget what it is, but because it's always bugged me too that this connection to to water, but somehow being bitter. That was it's always been an interesting juxtaposition for me. But I think for sure she's connected to to this this living symbol of water being particularly in the Middle East. It, it is the definitive element that means life. Without it, there is no life. I mean, we know that in general. Like when we're looking in space and looking at all these planets, what's the first question we ask? Is there water? Right? Because there is no life without water of some kind. So, so we understand that as human beings being of this kind of natural world, we get it that water, we're dependent on water for life. We are mostly water. I mean, I think you know, we, we get it on all kinds of levels, but when you live in a desert, when you live in a climate that is, your survival is determined by how much water either falls or is found, um, it, there's just a much deeper connection, I think, or awareness of the connection between life and water. And Miriam is the paradigmatic figure for us about um, water. You would never say, you know, to bitterness she brings water. I mean, yeah, she, where there's bitterness, she brings the water. Right. This is kind of contorting. It, it seems that it might be that there is water that is bitter, like brackish, and there is something you can do to it to make it sweet. So that story we get of um, Moshe does something to the water. Uh, my, my biblical year teacher of blessed memory, Tikva Freimerkensky said, there is a kind of um, situation with water in the, in the Middle East where if you take a certain plant and put that plant in it, that it, it chemically changes the water to being sweet and drinkable. Um, I, I'm just either approaching that age or like, or I'm just really tired this week, but I cannot for the life of me remember. But, but that's, um, so, so it might be something like that, like a memory of a bitter water that is made sweet. And probably only she would know that. That, that trick? Yeah. It's Moshe who does it in Torah. Okay. So, but but possibly it's women's lore, you know. But but he is the agent of that change in Torah. Um, but if we also think about the waters of birth, um, those waters that are necessary for birthing new life. I mean, it's a bitter experience, also, right? Like that. It's mixed. It's both new life emerging and the pain and danger, particularly in the ancient world the pain and danger associated with that are very, very real for both mother and infant. Um, so in some ways, bitter waters, if we're talking about birth in some ways, I guess it actually makes some sense. Right? All right, so, um, so we get the, uh, the story of, the, we get the mention of the death of Miriam. Um, let's go actually back to 2025, because this part is kind of loaded with with heavy things for the people. So they start complaining that they have no water after the death of Miriam, and we have the incident of Moshe and the rock, right? This is a doublet. This is a story that was told elsewhere. We're getting an, a reiteration of that story here in Numbers, where he strikes the rock. In the other story, he talks to it. In this one, he strikes it. Or no, there, whatever. Well, right, he strikes, and it was okay. 
because he was supposed to here he was supposed to talk to it and he hit it and water came forth but there was a serious consequence right for that all right so let's somebody read at 25 20 25 take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up on Mount Hor strip Aaron of his vestments and put them on his son Eleazar there Aaron shall be gathered into, unto the dead Moses did as Adonai had commanded they ascended Mount or, or in the sight of the whole community. Moses stripped Aaron of his vestments and put them on his son Eleazar, and Aaron died there on the summit of the mountain. When Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, the whole community knew that Aaron had breathed his last. All the house of Israel bewailed Aaron 30 days. Okay. So, So, take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, right? So for some of us, we can't help but hear the echo of kach et bincha et take your son, your only son, right? And you're going to offer him on a mountaintop, right? So you, if you hear kach et and it's a person, take this person, we can't help but hear some of us of the resonance, and we read it every Rosh Hashanah, right? So it's very familiar to us. Kach, take Aaron and Elazar his son, and I do in fact need these. Vehaal otam ho hahal, right? And bring them, bring them up to this mountain called Ho, right? So it's an interesting name for a mountain. It's almost like the mountain that's called mountain. How do you say mountain in Hebrew? Har. So you're going to take them to the Hal that's called Ho. <laughs> right? Like it's so Hol Hahal. You're gonna take them to Hol Hahal, the mountain. Right. So uh, take Aaron, meaning you're going to escort Aaron. Right? So still this is how we understand uh, a funeral in our tradition. The word for funeral in Hebrew is Levaya, which means accompaniment. Right? We don't have a word funeral. We have Livaya, the accompanying. That's nice. So you accompany someone. A Levaya. A Levaya, right? So you, someone dies. In our tradition, someone stays with the body 24-7. And then everyone accompanies the body to its final resting place. That it shouldn't be alone. Until it's in the ground, the body's not left alone, tr traditionally. Um, Jewish funeral homes, you know, still have someone, a shomer, who sits and recites psalms. Um, 24 hours a day, there's somebody reciting psalms. So, um, so this, this idea is very, very old for us, right? This idea of accompanying somebody. So you're going to take Aaron and Elazar, his son, because you're going to need to divest Aaron of his sacral vestments and you're going to have to vest Elazar because what's going to happen when Moshe comes down from the mountain and there's no Aaron like what's the first thing for the people what is their response going to be bewilderment well who's going to be bewilderment lost, lost. 
Who's going to be the Who's going to be the replacement? Who's going to be the replacement? Who's going to be the high priest? This is a moment of rabbinic transition, right? I mean, this is. Uh oh. If Moshe comes down alone and there's no high priest, they're going to be bewildered and lost. And what's the last time somebody went up on a mountain and the people were bewildered and lost? What happened then? It was not pretty, right? It was not good what happened then, right? The golden calf happens. So God seems to have learned something about what this people does when there's mountaintop ascension and somebody doesn't come down. Who's supposed to, right? The people go crazy. So possibly this is a loving act of God, right? To say, bring Elazar and we're going to vest, you're going to vest him up there so that the people don't flip out. They'll still see a high priest coming down the mountain. It just isn't Aaron. It's going to be the son. Is, is it possible that this act uh, sort of uh, establishes the, uh, the the family of the descendants of Aaron. For sure. The For sure. Yeah. And maybe, that's a good point, Reuben, and maybe also it's like so that there's no opportunity for that to be challenged. It happens on the mountain. Right, so it isn't like okay, they come down. There's no Aaron. They have his stuff, and now maybe there's. I've been watching the Borgias. Uh-huh. Has anybody seen the Borgias? Gorgeous! Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. I mean, each each episode is a movie, right? Of like, it's unbelievable the details they went the, the you know the they went to such extraordinary um, lengths to make every detail authentic. So it's the story of the Borgia Pope. You know the the family Borgia that that has that their person their patriarch is the Pope of of Rome, and um, the whole series is about the intrigue in the Vatican. Right, the whole thing is about the intrigue about families fighting to be the next Pope, and and all the politics of the cardinals and stabbings and poisonings and. You know, and alliances and betrayals and wars and like all this stuff that gets all over who's gonna wear the pontiffs, right? Um, regalia of all the robes and all the um, the headdress and everything and the incredible power that symbolizes, right? Of um, and the, and the pope in some ways was more powerful than the king because the pope invests the king. You know, like so. There's this idea that the the king is nothing without the investiture of the pope because the pope is the direct right kind of line to god and so um so there's that moment of if they come down with the vestments it's very possible there could have been right some serious ugliness around who's going to be the next kohen gadol the next high priest and they have to be a democracy and have an election and if they're going to be, if all the people are holy and it's going to be a democracy, then there's going to be an election and then there's going to be a campaign. That's not going to be pretty, right? So, um, and who loses, forget about it, right? So, nice, Reuben, very close reading. So that maybe this is, a, it happens on the mountain so that he comes down as high priest and Aaron's succession is, is assured. The succession of his 
what do you call it when it's by genetics? Dynasty. It is dynasty is. Progeny. Yeah, progeny. But it's when you pass stuff on through yeah. the genes. What's that? Bloodline. It's not like Moses through Joshua. It is succession. Is it progeny? No, it's. It, what is it when you inherit the power because you were born into it? Oh, it's. Uh, I know that word. Primogeniture. Uh, no. Uh, okay, it's. Uh, Everybody's been uh, sound like me. Right? It's yeah. bad today. <laughs> what is it? When you, like the kings? If you're, if you're, you get it because you're the child right, of the king. Right. The progenitor. You inherit. But you can inherit without being genetically linked. Oh, God. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me. Heir? No, you can be an heir without being a genetic descendant. What is it called when it's a genial? I mean, it's... You don't, I don't get the job because your dad is the head of the... Right, because you're born. Right. It's through the... the Bloodline, it's no. It, I'm talking about the system. Nepotism, nepotism. No, no, no. Nepotism is when you choose someone out of your own self-interest over someone who might deserve it. That's nepotism. This is in front of all the people. And it must be pretty dramatic. I mean, Aaron is still alive when he's walking, when they're going up there. Correct. Dies up there, so. Right. So, yeah, I have a question dramatic. about that. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a story, but it's bothering me. Yes. So, so he's fine. He walks up there, and they just leave him on the mountain to die. Presumably, his brother. Presumably, and no. His son. No. They presumably, they stay they with stay him with until him. he dies. Yeah. So they stay with him until he dies. Yeah. So that's still, I mean, horrendous. Moshe dies the same way. Moshe dies on a mountain by the kiss of God. Yeah. Well, what's that's, that seemed a little different to me. So what's the difference? I don't know. It just seemed like, like the kiss of God, like God kissed Moshe and then, you know. I'm going to read you. <clears throat> Funny you should bring it up. Thank you. By the way, it's bothering me. Two o'clock in the morning, you'll remember. That's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, I know. And then I'm going to call every, every one of us. Every single one of you. I'm trying to Google it. So. What's, yes, what's it called when you inherit because you're, it goes through the, the bloodline. It's, it's not primogenitor. No, that's the person. The right the, or the, the rule of primogenitor is the first son gets everything or gets more. That's primogenitor. Oh, it says inheritance the high priest church. <sighs> All right. So I'm going to read you. Um, if you don't know about this, you should. Um, this is called the Book of Legends, which is Sefer HaAgadah, um, Legends from the Talmud and Midrash. So Chaim Nachman Bialik and Yoshua Chana Ravnitsky scoured the Talmud and the Midrash for, for stories that were not legal, you know, they weren't legal rulings. It's all of the Agadah, all of the material from the Talmud that is not law. It's not halacha, it's Agadah. And it is in this book, and it is searchable both by scriptural reference and by topic. It exists in Hebrew, and it has been translated into English. And Bialik was a great poet. A great poet and yeah. a great translator of Agadah. So this is a huge, as you can see, book. Um, and it's fabulous that it's translated into English. So I'm going to read to you. 
Aaron's death so that you can feel better, Carol. Thank you, because it's bothering me. <laughs> when Aaron's time came to depart from this world, the Holy One said to Moses, Go tell Aaron of his impending death. So Moses rose early in the morning and went to Aaron. As soon as he called out, Aaron, my brother, Aaron came down and asked, What made you come here so early today? Moses replied, During the night I meditated on a, ma on a matter in scripture which I found distressing, and so I rose early and came to you. What was the matter? Aaron asked. I do not remember, but I know it was in the book of Genesis. Bring it, and we'll read it, says Moses. They took the book of Genesis, read each and every section in it, and said about each one of them, the Holy One wrought well, created well. But when they came to the creation of Adam, Moses asked, What is one to say of Adam who brought death to the world, so that I who prevailed over the ministering angels and you who held back death are not even you and I to have a like end? After all, how many more years have we to live? Not many, Aaron answered. Moses continued talking until finally he mentioned to him the precise day when death was to come. At that moment, Aaron's bones felt the imminence of his own demise. So he asked, is it because of me that you found the matter in scripture so distressing? Moses answered, yes. At once, Israel noticed that Aaron's height had diminished. Even as Aaron said, my heart doth writhe within me and the terrors of death are fallen upon me from Psalms. Moses asked, is dying acceptable to you? Aaron, yes. Moses, then let us go up to the mountain, to the top of the mountain. At that, the three, Moses, Aaron, and Elazar, went up in the sight of all Israel. Had Israel known that Aaron was going up to die, they would not have allowed it, but would have besought mercy on his behalf. However, they thought that the divine word had summoned him. When the three reached the top of the mount, a cave opened for them. In it, they found a burning lamp and a couch, both wrought by heaven. Then Aaron proceeded to remove his garments one by one, and Elazar donned them, until finally a celestial cloud enveloped Aaron's body. Moses said to Aaron, Just think, Aaron, my brother, when Miriam died, you and I attended her. Now that you are about to die, I and Elazar are attending you. But I... When I die, who will attend me? The Holy One said to Moses, Bechayecha, as you live, I myself will attend you. It's really beautiful. It goes on for um, a little bit, but this is um, directly from the Talmud um, because the rabbis had the same problem you did, right? The rabbis had the same problem. It's like, wait a minute, this is Aaron, the high priest. How, how, how could it be? They just go up on the mountain and he dies and Elazar comes down in his clothes. That, that cannot be all there is to that scene, right? That's just, it distressed the rabbis uh, too greatly, right, to leave it there. So um, there's this it's also, beautiful midrash. To me, it's a gift that Aaron got to see the trans transition of power and be there. To see his yes. son yes. take over. Because what happened to Aaron? vis-a-vis -vis sons. Two of them died. Yeah. Two of them died for being too cheeky, offering strange fire. Maybe they got what they wanted, which is to be really close to God. 
whatever it was, he watched two of his children in service, in direct service, be immolated, burned, burned alive, right? So for him, I think in the rabbinic imagination, to see Elazar dressed in his vestments safely, right, is for them the coup de grace, it's the blessing for Aaron that, that he sees his son take over and live. Um, is there a midrash in there about Miriam? Because she had it much less just one month, and Miriam died and was buried. Yeah. Right? The, yeah, the rabbis... That's even more disturbing to me. Don't spend nearly the time right, and around Miriam's death. 30 days for Aaron. That's right. Um, so I have a question. Well, wait. Let, you, let, oh, let, I'm sorry. Let answer that sorry. One. Um, so they, they don't spend... There's one, actually, there's one midrash that's very distressing to me, um, and it's... And it's like right after that incident, you know, the, the people start, you know, the people are going again. And so um, there's an incident where the Midrash has God say to Moses, like, get up and get about your business and quit mourning that dead old woman. Wow. So there, there's actually some Midrash that's not pretty. It's not nice about Miriam. Think that's a gender issue? I, I I don't know, but I have to think it's something about they. Yeah, I think there's something that bugs the rabbis about Miriam being a Nivia, a prophetess. You know, Moses is a Navi. She has the exact same status. I mean, not status, God forbid, but it's the same word, the same term used of her that's used of Moshe. And I think on some level, the rabbis need to. Is, is Knock you know, Miriam down a notch. Is Midrash canonized, or can you still, I mean, like, are we making Midrash now? We are so always making Midrash. When we say the Midrash, we mean, generally, the body of Midrashic literature that was produced during the period of the rabbi's capital R, right? So Talmud, so the, you know, the kind of, the, the period of the Talmud, and there's more than the Midrash that's in the Talmud. But that's kind of the period we're talking about. It's the rabbinic period, capital R. And all of that, Haggadah, right? I mean, all of this is from the rabbinic period. This is Haggadah. But this is not canonized. No, no. That's the difference. It's outside the canon. That's what makes it midrash. Um, and it, in a sense, it's canonized in that it was capped. You know, the, the Talmud was codified, right? It was. It was sealed. It was edited, mm -hmm. circa, you know, four, six hundred, six, around six hundred or eight hundred of the Common Era. This was kind of, you know, closed as a body of literature. So that's we mean from the destruction of the Temple to about one thousand. That that's the kind of that's the rabbinic period, really, because then you're going into early medieval, which already starts to be, you know, a different kind. But but we're still writing midrash. We're still Lidrosh simply means to expound, to unpack, right? And so we're, the rabbis say that the Torah is black fire written on white fire. And our job is to read the white spaces, right? You know, we, we learn the black, and our, our job forever as a people is to, is to explore the white fire. They were the priests protecting their patriarchy. Yes. And Miriam was a symbol of a pope. Well, 
challenging the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the crux of the whole thing. I think so. I think she was a serious symbol of women's strength and power. And there was always um, a competing element of early Israelite experience, which was the goddess. Like they lost that when they converted from being Canaanites to being this in this Yahwist religion, they lost the goddess. And some of them never got over that, right? They were never willing to let it go. So we have in Kuntilat Adrud in the south of Sinai, there is a cave where they found a, uh, a image of uh, a crowned god. And it says to Yahweh, yud heh vav -Heh, to Yahweh and his consort, Asherah. So there was syncretistic worship even in the Yaoist tradition. So my guess is they were constantly fighting against the urge of the people to have their feminine God stuff represented. Um, so if it couldn't be a consort, then it's a Miriam. It's a, right, you know, the, that constant longing. And, and we know the prophets, if you read the prophets, they're constantly yelling and screaming about tearing down the Asherahs, right? Which means, why are you yelling and screaming about Christmas trees in the living room unless the people have Christmas trees in the living room, right? So that there, there wouldn't have been the need for the prophets to keep yelling and screaming about the Asherah unless the people continued to worship Asherah. And in every single period of Israelite occupation of Israel, they have found in every period statues of the female divine. Like there's no time where there wasn't that. How is Aviva Zornberg regarded in the Orthodox communities? I mean, I know she comes here, she writes books, but what do they do with her in Israel? I think she has a radio show. But she's, does she have a congregation? Is she treated with respect? She's um, she's not a rabbi. She's not. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Always thought she. Was. Her background is literature. Um, my guess is, and this is just my own. Just, this is not founded on anything other than my own guess um, and instinct. My bet is she has a photographic memory. Um, so if you read Aviva Zornberg, <laughs> right. Um, she, she uses literature as the, you know, um, container in which to explore ideas found in Torah. And she quotes sources that, I mean, it's so obscure. It, you know, that she has to have read it somewhere and remembered it, then read this, right, and made that connection. Because there's no way you'd read this and then go find that obscure reference in some psychologist writing in 1573. Like she's amazing that way. So, so her background really is literature, and and that whole world of literature. Um, and then she she draws beautifully on that to explore. And she has a, she has a command of the midrashic tradition that is really something. But not but. And you know my my guess is she's not taken very seriously in the Orthodox world because she's not doing what they're interested in. Which is? 
um, getting further into their understanding of what God is trying to reveal. Either through halakha or in the agadic portions, you know, what is it we're supposed to take from this in terms of God's revelation. She's, she's, she explores this as literature. So they, they don't have much use for her, I would imagine. I wouldn't think they would listen to I, a I mean, woman teach Torah. You know, some, it's, it's changing slowly. It's changing. Like, um, they, they are starting to... Women at the wall? To ordain women in the Orthodox world as teachers. Ah. Like, yeah. not as public congregational presences, because that is considered talking to the whole unseemly. Right. That is why it's Absolutely. illegal. Yeah. It's not because they're women and can't be a rabbi. It's because it is not sneistic. It is not modest. And therefore, it makes the congregation immodest for a woman to be leading the congregation, a mixed congregation of men and women. But they are starting to recognize women's level of learning as, as the title rabbi or something like it. So are they then just teaching women, other women? Yes. 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 Yeah. But, but there are f women teachers who you know have male Orthodox students, I'm sure. Um, but her whole role is different. She's not going to be the same kind of leader. Yeah. Now we need a definition of modest. <laughs> now, well, it, it's fascinating because that, that really is the reason that, I mean, that's the reason they use, right? That, that's the halachic basis for not having women do those things. Hmm. It's not forbidden. Nowhere is it forbidden, but it's immodest. It's unseemly for the congregation, which is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so really, if I can just close this comment, these comments on Miriam's on the the status of Miriam. In what I'm reading here, it's sort of like an afterthought. Half a dozen words. Miriam died there and was. There, that, that's it, and it's it's on the tail end of a paragraph having to do with not very much, you know. The Israelites arrived someplace, right? And we get the status. Normally, how long does someone mourn in the ancient world? Thirty days. Is, is that what? So the the immediate period of mourning is is seven days, right? So for Aaron, it's thirty because of his status, uh, uh -huh. right? So it's a huge deal that they mourned him. 30 days. They mourn Moses 30 days. And Miriam we get nothing about yeah. what you get, Miriam. Um, and I don't know exactly what happens. The next parts of the Torah after her death is a lot of action with Moses and inappropriate action. So you see the consequences and you're, you know, you're experiencing consequence after her death. The, um, so you, I mean, you're still getting the impact of her death. So they haven't put time It's in very time. interesting. Rabbi Rami Shapiro explains Moshe hitting the rock. Um, as being a result of Miriam's death. That he's so caught up in his grief and despair and loneliness for his sister that when the people start to grumble, he, lo he absolutely loses it. Like he, he kind of loses his faith, right? And, and rather than doing what God asked, which is speak to the rock, he just he loses it and he, he hits the rock. So it's, it's an, you, you, that's exactly where some of the great commentators go is, yes. Moshe is, does not do well 
after Miriam's death in some ways, right? So it's, it's not great action that Moses is associated with right after her death. I would postulate that his grief is not only for Miriam as a sister, but she really func has functioned at a certain point in his life as a substitute mother. Yes, she's and always been, in some ways, his mother, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, she, she saved him at, at the right. river and presumably, right, stayed with him as that kind of... I mean, if she was old enough to stand at the riverbank and intercede with do the daughter of Pharaoh, presumably, she, you know, she's a good deal older than Moshe. At least, what, 10 years? 12 years? 15 years? Whatever, you know. So she, um, she was older by enough that I'm sure she... I mean, think of sisters who have baby brothers 10 years or more younger than them, right? They, they often are a surrogate mother. They're another mother. Often mom is busy. You know? I, I have a brother who's 12 years younger, and he calls me his American mother, and, my mo and, his, and our mother, his uh, Yiddish mother. His Yiddish mama, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, there you go. There it is, right? So Miriam, for sure, functioned as a mother figure to Moshe, for sure. And just lastly, uh, I, there's got to be a lot of commentary that all in this portion we lose Miriam, we lose Aaron, and then Moshe finds he's not going to—he's going to die before entering into the Holy Land. What's that all about? This concentrated death of this whole family. It's—it's it's pretty intense, right? Yeah. We get her death. He's informed he's not going to make it yeah. into the Promised Land, and then Aaron dies. Yeah. Like it is. It is intense. Like, it's just a really boom, boom, boom right. kind of, and it's three in a row. It's all three of them. Yeah. Aaron, all three of them. Aaron did not strike the, the rock, and yet the same rationale is used for him not being able to see the promised land. And that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So wh where, where are you locating that? Well, okay. Um, See, God says to Moshe ah, yeah. and Aaron, because you did not trust me, right. right, and did not affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the land that I have given them. So, I said to Moses and Aaron. Correct. So the question is, what is the sin for which they are not allowed in? Not everybody says it's the hitting. Because you're right, that's only Moshe. So you raise what lots of the commentators do, which is, so it doesn't make sense that the next sentence is, God speaks to Moshe and Aaron and says, because you did not trust me. So what is it referring to? It's got to be something else. It's got to be something else. It's not the hitting, say those folk. One answer is, when Moshe... Moshe and Aaron assembled the congregation, and Moshe says, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water from you out of this rock? That's the moment, say some of our commentators. Why? We. We. Oh. You, di you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people. You said we. Well, y'all are not getting in because y'all didn't do nothing. I did. 
And if y'all can't, right? Even the weak. Affirm my power in front of these people, you are not fit to lead them into the promised land. But it's still Moses who said we. It's true. <laughs> it's true. In that case, he got Aaron killed in the desert. I think it's something else. Okay. <clears throat> I think Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam are of that first generation that do not get to enter the promised land. But why? Mm. Because. because the first generation of Hebrews the is generation. the slave mentality does not get to enter the promised land. Because mm -hmm. the Moshe wasn't a slave, scouts. which is interesting. Moshe was never a slave. Yeah, they're going to the new history. This phase is finished. Yes. They're going to uh, creating a new uh, a new people for themselves. Right. The, the land and that experience clearly, according to Torah, belongs to the next generation. Yeah. Clearly. It's, uh, it's still very be clear. people that had been slaves that would still be alive that would go? Presumably, no. Presumably, they got told, your carcasses are going to drop here in the desert. Wow. Your children will get in, you will not. You know, in some ways, the generation that came to this country as adults, like my parents did, could not really take full advantage. They were the sweatshop generation who made it possible for us to go to public universities, but they couldn't. Right. So it makes sense. Right, that Moshe, growing up speaking Egyptian, <laughs> really, you know, the Egypt experience could, couldn't translate, not for the people and not for the leaders. It, it had to be Joshua and Elazar. One being a genetic inheritance of authority, and one being by charisma, by the you know by by the, an indication that God is with them. Right? Moshe chooses Joshua because God says, "My spirit is with him." Right? Um, through Aaron, it's going to be genealogical, um, and there's lovely conversation for the rabbis about how did Moses feel about that. Right, that it wasn't his sons who were going to be inheriting his power. And there's really lovely stuff written about because you need both. Aaron was about keeping the system running, tending to the details, and that's something you can teach. You can teach the proper procedures and how to follow them. What you can't teach is the Moses kind of leadership. The Moses leadership is your personality, your desire for this, your abilities, <laughs> your charisma, your, right, that, that that's something that can't be taught. It can't be passed down from father to son. It, it, it has to be, it's just, it's innate. It's in you. you. What's that book? You can't send a duck to Eagle School? Huh. To Hebrew School? E you can't send a, send a duck to Eagle School. Or Hebrew School. Or Hebrew School, <laughs> presumably. Although, some days, Unless he's very bright. if you go downstairs, it feels a bit like being pecked to death by ducks. But we are going to go right now to quick chapter 21, because I want to get to the Nechoshet, and then we'll close. So someone read at 21, please. And the Canaanite king of Arad, who dwelt in the Negev, learned that Israel was coming by the way of Atarim. He engaged Israel in battle. He took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you deliver this people into our hand, we will push 
proscribed their towns. The Lord heeded Israel's plea and delivered up the Canaanites, and they and their cities were proscribed. So that place was called Hormon. Go on. They set out from Mount Hor, Hor by uh, <coughs> way of the Sea of Reeds to skirt the land of Edom, but the people grew restive on the journey. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you make us leave Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water. We've come to loathe this miserable food. The Lord said, Sarah, serpents against the people. They bit the people and many of the Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord to take away the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a seraph figure and mount it on a standard. And if anyone who is bitten looks at it, he shall recover. Moses made a copper serpent and mounted it on a standard. And when anyone was bitten by a serpent, he would look at the copper serpent and recover. The Israelites marched on and encamped at Obo. They set off from Obo and encamped at the uh, Aye Avarim in the desert, bordering on Moab to the east. All right, let's, let's stop and unpack this business. So this is a interesting an interesting scene here. We're, if we had time, we would spend more time on the beginning of chapter 21, but we don't. So we're going to look at verse 4. That on the way from Mount Hor, where Aaron has just died, right? They're skirting the land of Edom. The people grow restive on the journey, right? Um, on the way. Some want to read this as because of the journey. Right? Rashi uh, comments, probably on um, some unknown Midrashic source, um, because of the difficulties of the journey. They said, now that we are close enough to enter the land, yet we have to turn back, just so had our fathers to turn back and detoured in the wilderness 38 years until this day. Consequently, they became dismayed because of the hardships of their journey. So that's Rashi. Um, so whatever the reason, they are really agitated they're not happy. And what do they do? They speak by Deber Ha'am Elohim against Elohim, Uve Moshe, and against Moshe. Lama Ha'elitunu Mimitraim. Why did y'all bring us up from Mitraim, Lamut Midbar, to die in the Midbar? Right? There's no Lechem, there's no Mayim. And our spirits are short with this, with this lechem, with this, that's, um, cloquel. Um, I don't know how to translate that. this miserable food, is what it says. Cloquel from, from, from light to treat, you know, something trivial. Weightless. It's weightless. It's trivial, nothing. Lechem, I think, you know, Melba toast or, oh. right? <laughs> like, matzah. matzah. Like, you know, ech with this. So, so think about how many incidents there's been of this people turning on 
God and the leadership to say, right? So even in their grief, right, over Aaron's death, they st- like they still can't get past, right, their own whatever. And they turn on Moshe and, and God. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? And God's had it. Clearly, God has had it. So God... This is the next generation. This is not the one coming out. This is 38 years later. The generation that's going to enter. But they're not the same people. They're not the same mentality. So So not much has changed. They want want to understand. So even though it might be a nagging question, there is no God. There's a reason for it. So say that again? They want to understand. They are nagging and aren't appreciating God's actions but it's because they don't understand. I, th- I feel, and, and, you know, I'm thinking, well, then how can the speaker or the teacher restate what's to be? So, so you're They do understand and they can't appreciate. So you have some sympathy for them. <clears throat> that this second generation is going, what's up? We're going to well, die out here? I don't know if it's sympathy, but they need to, they're not understanding. What so are they not understanding? The value of God's presence and the most So they go further than you not understanding. Why did you make us leave Egypt oh, here? to die yeah. in the wilderness? There's no bread and there's no water, okay. right? And we've come to hate this trivial junk you're feeding us. Okay. All right, so you're right, they're not appreciative. But is there no water? Didn't we just have... God provide them with water just now from a rock? And there's no bread, true, but there's manna. So they're being fed, they're being watered, and they're saying there's no bread, there's no water, we hate the food you're giving up, right? So, and you, why did you bring us out here to kill us? Who said they're going to die? Nobody said they're going to die. Their parents were going to die. Maybe that's what they mean. You're killing our people okay either way it's not good and god sends right srafim what is lisrof in hebrew to burn saf burn so fiery if you get fiery translations that's why lisrof is to burn so but we but my text doesn't translate seraph does yours they, no, they said seraph, yeah. serpents. Right. So, because the verb seraph means burn, right? But this says it sent, that God sent seraphim, like it's a noun, not a verb. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it could mean fiery, like deadly. I mean, if you get bitten by a poisonous mm-hmm. snake, you might feel like you're on fire. Right? So maybe that's what it means. Poisonous snakes burning. Your skin turns red. Exactly. Um, we're not sure. Um, but we get Srafim later in the vision of, right, the prophet. So, um, so it seems to be a kind of winged, serpenty, snaky thing that was known in the ancient world. A kind of angel as well. So that is what we get in the vision of Ezekiel. Is the seraphim 
are a kind of angel. Um, so it is possible that it was a winged, think, think dragon that's like a snake, right? So some dragons are serpent-like, right? Like, right? Why am, am I the only one who like, knows this? Yeah. I've been in this business too long. doctors chose the... Ha-ha, that's where we're going. That. That's exactly where we're going. That's exactly where we're going. Thank you, Reuben. So, um, in any case, th this is what gets sent against the people, right? Um, so, and they bit the nation, the people. And a good deal of them, right, died. So then they come to Moshe. <clears throat> We've sinned in that we spoke, right? And the bet here means, it has to mean against, not in. In doesn't make any sense. But about, you know, in a, in a bad way. And about you, right? Against you. palel el Pray to God. That like God should take away from us the nachash. And does Moshe look at them and say, forget you? No, he does not. He's lost his sister. He's lost his brother. They are at him again. God sends Seraphim. They say, please, we're, we've sinned. We know we did wrong. Pray for us. And what does Moshe do? Va'it palel Moshe ba'ad ha'am. And Moshe prays on behalf of the people. Va'yomer Adonai el Moshe. Right? So God says to Moshe, Aselecha saraf. Make for yourself a saraf. Vesimoto al nes. And put it on a... What's nace? It says standard here. A standard. A stick. What do we know the word nace to mean? Nace. Nace gadol hayasham. Oh, a miracle. Ah, a miracle. A ness. A ness. Right? So interesting that the word is, right, a pole, a standard. But the word is the same word we use in rabbinic Hebrew for miracle. Because what happens is, in fact, a sort of... Nace, right? Because what's going to happen? You're going to put it on this thing. So what is going to happen? Make a seraph, put it on this thing, and anyone who was bitten, if they look at it, they will recover. They'll be okay. Well, it says they'll live. That's actually, that's all it says. We don't know if they're going to be okay, but they're going to live. So Moshe makes a nachash, a snake, nechoshet, of bronze. Copper. Copper. Okay. So, first of all, he makes a nachash, nechoshet. We cannot miss the wordplay in the Hebrew. Just a minute. We can't miss the wordplay um, in the Hebrew, nachash, nechoshet. Um, and, but... God doesn't say, make it out of nechoshet. Right? What does God say? 
make, make a, a, a saraf. Moshe makes a nachash nechoshet. God says make a saraf. And, God, and Moshe makes a snake, a nachash, out of nechoshet. But they're not going to mess with gold again, right? Uh, <coughs> presumably, nice. Presumably Moshe knows, okay, gold is probably not a great idea. Right? Last time we had a gold animal thing, it went very, very badly. Um, so what could, so some people say copper, others say bronze. We are dealing with the Bronze Age, so it does seem that they knew about bronze. But some commentators say the only thing that would have imitated a poisonous snake would have been the red color of copper. That that would have more likely represented this idea of a, of a poisonous snake, but certainly not gold, like um, Mickey said. Um, probably not a good idea. What difference does it make that it was made out of? How is that? Important? So, just that the, the commentators are interested that God doesn't tell Moshe what to make it out of, and Moshe makes it out of Nechoshet. So, of course, they read this like a love letter. Why? Well, maybe Moshe thinks, I've got to make it out of something sturdy. Got to make it out of metal. There aren't a lot of trees around. I'm going to make it out of metal. So let's pick the metal that sounds like Nachosh. Yes. So, I mean, my question is kind of like Mickey's. Isn't this a little bit like worshiping false idols? Ha. So, it could look a lot like worshiping false idols. How? You look up at it and you're healed. And you're, yeah. You look up at it and you're healed. Okay? So it could look like they're looking at the snake and the snake somehow affects their healing. That would be idolatry. God forbid. So we're going to look at a commentary that answers exactly that point. Um, and it is very true that poisonous snakes are known in the Sinai. And it is also... Uh, very true that in the neighboring peoples around early Israel, including Egypt, there are winged seraphim, right? There, there's, there's this idea of serpent-like winged beings. Some of them are gods. You know, some of them are just magical beings. Look at the sphinx sitting at the entrance of every temple or every holy place. There would have been winged Big time, big old, scary somethings at the door to say, right? Make sure your intentions are appropriate coming in here, right? They're scary. They're meant to be scary. By the same token, this serpent also, we know that some of the venom from serpents is what's used to heal certain things. So the snake was, the snake was also a symbol of what it means to die, a certain kind of death by shedding its skin and coming out the other side of that a new thing, right? Resurrection. Resurrection. It's kind of a symbol of healing by sloughing off that which is dead, that which is no longer useful, and emerging from that process of molting. Or is it molting for a snake? Yes. Okay. Um, I can't think of what it is to inherit through the bloodline, but I know molting. Okay. 
We'll go figure. So, um, so when a snake molts, right, it's that rejuvenating power that in part makes it this symbol of healing. But even this early, if you're dealing with the bite of a poisonous snake, it seems that the snake comes to be the cure. But it's very clear that they were not to take the seraph itself as the agent of healing, but rather, we're going to look at a commentary that says, it was to direct their eyes upward. So lift the nechosh, the nechosh, nechosh at high, and the people look up, figure, look, think of desert sun hitting copper, look up, Right? And you will be chai, alive, kept alive. Right? So look up to God, people, you people who continue to take everything for granted and think that, you know, that you did this. Lift your eyes up to heaven and get it that that is where your food, your water, your healing, your everything comes from me. So let's look a little bit at that, and then we'll close. I've given you also some stuff on Miriam's well and the cup of Miriam, so that you can just tuck it away in your Haggadah, so that when Pesach comes, if I forget, um, you have their instructions for uh, Miriam's cup and how to use Miriam's cup at your Seder. You can find it uh, at ritualwell.org. Or just do a Google search for Kos Miriam, the cup of Miriam, and you can get lots of lovely different kinds of uh, rituals. All right. So let's look at this business, right, of the Nechoshet. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to figure out which one to do with you because I don't have time to do both. Um, all right, let's look at the one that says Parshat Chukat. Yeah. And this says Parshat Chukat also. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Um, the one that that looks like this that doesn't say the well of tradition. It just says that very same snake. All right, Pam, start reading. The very same snake that makes us so wary is held in high esteem as a symbol of healing. Fear of snakes is one of the most common phobias. One theory is that we are hardwired to be wary of these creatures and spiders too. That's the scientific theory. The religious perspective <coughs> takes us back to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts and uh, that. that Lord God had made. Uh, shrewdness is not necessarily a bad trait. That serpent actually provided some accurate and enlightening commentary on God's words. It is how that information was used that provided the problem by demonstrating that a little knowledge is truly a dangerous thing. All right, so we got a Nahash early in our Torah story, right? We've got the Nahash in the garden. The Nahash was shrewd, it was our room, right? Naked. Wily, both. The word means both. 
that doesn't seem to be the problem. The Nachash actually says some interesting things in Bereshit. The problem is what the human beings did with it. Right? So a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing the snake represents. Right? That power that when misused is not a good thing. Hey, even Moses got jittery around snakes, says our commentary. Remember when Moses wanted proof to show the Egyptians that he was sent by God? God said to him, what is that in your hand? And he replied, a rod. And he said, cast it on... And this, I apologize for the God language. It is not mine. It is the commentator who is Rabbi Michal Shekel. Um, so I will try to change it as I read. So God said, cast it on the ground. Moshe cast it on the ground and it became a nachash. And Moses recoiled from it. Then God said to Moses, put out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So Moshe put out his hand and seized it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that Adonai, the God of their fathers, did appear to you. Well, of course he would recoil from it. Moses was also hardwired to be wary of the danger posed by snakes. So here we get a description of uh, what our thing that just happened. Drop down to Bulo where it says Numbers 21. A seraph is a certain type of winged snake, perhaps similar to a cobra. These creatures appear elsewhere in sacred contexts as slithery servants of the Sovereign One. In Isaiah's vision, the seraphim surround God's throne and declare, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. These serpents are associated with royalty uh, elsewhere in the ancient world. Egypt is the home for images of winged serpents. So what did the people yell and scream about in this episode? What were they yelling about? What were they complaining about? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us here? Right? The erect cobra standing on its coil is the symbol of royalty for the Pharaoh and the gods of Egyptian history. You are complaining that I brought you out of Egypt to kill you? Guess what, people? Right? I'm going to bring the symbol of Pharaoh and Egyptian royalty and Egyptian gods, I'm gonna bring it against you and it's gonna, it's gonna kill you. I didn't kill you, I fed you. I gave you water, I gave you mana. I gave you everything to keep you high. And what do you say? What is the thanks I get for that, says God? Okay, no problem. You're bummed about being brought out of Egypt, all right. I'm gonna show you what the agent of death is, and what the agent of life is, you ungrateful Israelites. This puts the punishment in perspective. Egypt is not the nostalgic place of Israelite memory. It is the land where the people suffered under the venomous rule of a king whose symbol was a serpent. Right? That makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Than just kind of this random thing going on, right? Fortunately, the Israelites repent and are healed in a unique way. Right? So we get this whole idea of how how they're uh, healed that we already read. Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine, didn't have a medical bag, but he did have a snake. Western medical iconography up until today consists of one or two snakes entwined around a nace, around a standard, a rod, exactly what we saw in our Torah portion, yes? One of the most well-known artifacts of the Timna excavations near Eilat is a copper snake, usually taken as a divine symbol. So this idea that they look at the snake and are healed, later in 
Later writings, uh, not in the five <coughs> books, but later we're told that the king of Israel destroyed the Nechoshet, the Nachash Nechoshet of Moses. Why? Because it was a false idol. Because it was getting way too close to idolatry. When you stop using it as the means to look up to the source of healing and start to transfer instead some idea that that's what's causing the healing, big trouble, we're back to an animal made out of gold. And the problems that never go away are longing to mislocate right, the source of life and source of healing. All right, I leave you with these to study on your own. Having just read about the Nachash Nachoshet as an agent of healing, we will make a Mishaberach for...